This morning, I'm in part two of where I left off last week in the gospel according to Mark. You can go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Mark's gospel. Those of you who are using the Pew Bible, mine is pinned down right here. If you will tell me the page number, I'll share it in the room. Anybody got the page number in front of them? 970, thank you. 970 in the Bible that's provided for you in the pew. You've got to remember, as I mentioned last week, Mark, under the direction of the Apostle Peter, wrote this down, this, this account down, to help readers know that Jesus is the Son of God and the suffering servant, as predicted in the Old Testament, especially by Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah has two halves, and there's that little middle section there where it tells you about the onslaught of the Assyrians. But the first half really proclaims the king, and then the second half is the servant, and Isaiah declares us the king and the servant are the same person. And Mark gets to unveil this bringing together the two in this one man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the king, and he, but this king has a cross. He is the son of God and the suffering servant. He came to serve, as Mark tells us, and to give his life as a ransom for many. How many kings can you say that about? There's no king like King Jesus. There's no shepherd like this one who has laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so Mark calls all readers of this gospel to repent and believe. And that's the title of this entire expositional series I'm going through. Repent and believe the good news is the title of the sermon series that we're going in. And so we picked up on the first three verses last week. And so repent and believe the good news, first sermon, because the Son prepares the way. And so we thought about that, how we, it was just as the Old Testament predicted. And today is part two, because the Son prepares the way by powerfully forming a special people in himself. By powerfully forming a special people in himself. So last week we learned... We saw how the Lord would send a messenger ahead of his people who would prepare the way for God's people back home. On the surface read, remember last week we saw that John, ba John the Baptist was the, the messenger sent to prepare for the first coming of the Lord. However, we also looked and saw how Mark has brilliantly, by the power of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this section to Mark that the Messiah is the one who ultimately clears the way who is the trailblazer for God's people to lead his elect home forever. And today we will see how John the Baptist, the last old covenant prophet, will proclaim the same truth about the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Mark chapter 1, now verses, I'll just read it all in context. Let's just start at verse 1 through verse 8 today, but I'll be focusing on verses 4 through 8 as I preach. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and, prepare, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, 
the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's holy word. Amen. You know, many of us today, just like back then, think our greatest need lies often outside of us. If I could just get this, if it just, was just like this circumstance would change. We think often we need, need just a better world through worldly means. And back then, people saw their greatest need was to be delivered from Roman oppression. Here in the passage, Mark wrote to persuade that Jesus, as God the Son, second person of the Trinity, has come to do the work of freeing and uniting God's true people to himself and transform their lives permanently by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in verses 4 through 6, you see there John the Baptist preaching and and his baptism pointed to their need to prepare to be cleansed, delivered, and formed in unity under the Messiah. And then verses 7 and 8, he proclaimed that the long-awaited ministry of the Messiah by the Spirit was very, very near. You know, it wasn't religious experiences that they needed, but rebirth. God always called his people to prepare to meet Christ. So here's the central point if you're taking notes. Rebellion separates all peoples from God. Rebellion separates, you could just say, separates all from God. Therefore, let us humble ourselves, speaks calls. It is Christ alone who can save to eternal life. Let us humble ourselves because it is Christ alone who can save to eternal life. That was John's preaching, and that's going to be my preaching today. Repent and trust in Christ. And there are two primary points I pray you will see from the text. We see your need for cleansing and focus on the one who can cleanse. See your need for cleansing, then focus, point two, focus on the one who can cleanse. You know, beloved, as we listen to the sermon this morning, we, we, we either remember that our acts of worship are offered in light of what Christ has done, or we somehow erroneously think that we will participate in our right standing before God. So let's not believe that we are, um, you know, participating in our deeds to earn righteousness with Him. No, let's remember as believers here this morning that we respond to Christ because of who He is and what He's done in all of our worship. We will either be indicating, church, this morning, our trust in the power of Christ or in the power of our righteousness. We will either be focused on the true deliverer or focused on a worldly leader. Only one can heal. Only one can truly cleanse. Only one can truly forgive. His name is Jesus. Pray that he will be more glorious in your heart Eclipsing all other concerns, your primary concern, I pray, will be Jesus Christ. Today, though, if you are here and you're not turning from sin and trusting in Christ, then the sermon, I pray, will help you to see that you, like all humanity, are in need of a Savior. Perhaps today you come to the realization for the first time that you are a slave to sin, and if you don't get help, you will die in your sin and face God whom you have sinned against, and it will be dreadful. There's no need to walk around in despairing anxiety, though. 
There's no reason to think this life is as good as it gets. There's no reason for you to die that way. And believe it, and, and beloved, you all know, we all will die at some point. But we either die in the Lord, or we die in our sin. And today, I hope you see there's a clear choice set before you. You don't have to die in your sins. You can know cleansing and forgiveness in Christ. Rebellion separates all peoples from God. Therefore, let us humble ourselves because it is Christ alone that can save to eternal life. Point number one, see your need for cleansing. See your need for cleansing. We're going to focus on verses four through six here. You know, I recently read that uh, in Britain, it's a standard joke that wherever the queen goes, she smells fresh paint because there's great effort in preparing. And when she walks in the room, there's evidence that fresh paint has been applied. Well, looking at the text here, we see that John was like the messenger going ahead of royalty, getting everywhere ready for the stronger one who was coming after him. Israel as a whole needed smartening up, you could say. Each individual within Israel needed to smarten up, and that's why he's preaching. And that's what the Word of God does to all of us, is to smarten us up. Awaken us to God. As readers of the text, there is, there's our clue. We need to smarten up. We need to see our need, particularly for cleansing. In verses 4 through 6, there's a messenger in the desert illustrating an exodus to come, calling for repentance. And all of these proclaim to every reader, we all need cleansing because sin defiles us before God and only He can free us and only He can cleanse us for Himself for holy use. Okay, first sub-point. We need a messenger to the desert. We need a messenger to the desert. Why, Pastor Garrett? Because everyone's a sinner. We are none naturally born into God's family. Everyone needs to be called to repent. You know, literary allusions are generally lost on us often. Um, we, we don't know our Bibles as well as, as we often think that we do. We know a lot about sports, pop culture, politics, and other interests, but we often miss the things the early church would have grasped in a clear way about the text. For many, Scripture was the only textbook, especially among devout Jews, and was studied intensely by Christians, including Gentiles. Life centered around the Bible, and, it, and life was ordered by the Bible. To be, to be honest, we could argue that our homes need to put the Bible front and center again and not the idols of entertainment and distraction. But Mark wants us to see how this story has a broader setting in God's purposes in the Bible of Israel's and all creation's redemption. It's, it's an incredible Let's look at the text. Verse 4 literally reads, John the baptizer. He appeared in the desert preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So look at the picture here. We have a man who, verse 6, clues us in that looks like Elijah. If you know Elijah from the Old Testament, the original audience would have read that and saw that. Preaching repent and be forgiven, immersing people in the well-known Jordan River. Okay, these aren't subtle clues that Mark's giving us here as readers. These are big announcements. You know, Malachi 4 foretold of an Elijah-like prophet to come. Well, here he is. 
And for the Jews, a certified prophet <laughs> had appeared as they used to do with regularity in the good old days, which could only mean that the beginning of the end was about to take shape. John was a voice shouting against the, the dreams, perhaps the nightmares of the Judaism of, of Herod and Caiaphas. The Judaism of the day talked a lot about the story of freedom, but had no idea what freedom would look like when it came. And some thought John was mad. That it was him who, you know, him who was dream, dreaming. But there he was, immersing folks in the Jordan, telling them to get ready for the greatest moment in Jewish and world history. And think about, it. not only was John preaching with power, but think of the contrast of how... He, John wasn't, as you can tell by his diet, according to the text, you know, uh, you know the only one I think in our church that might have a competing diet with, uh, with John the Baptist might be Matt Goddard. He, he'll ask him about some of the things he might try sometime, and I love teasing Matt about that. But what contrasted, what the, what the text is giving you that detail is John just sticks out such contrast to the, what you would call the fat cats of the religious elite of the Jewish uh, circles. That's why when they came, they didn't like him. If you can read about that in Matthew's gospel. And he tells them, <laughs> he calls them a brood of vipers. Jesus does too. John the Baptist. They, so as the audience is reading this for the first time, they're, and you, he's putting you in their circumstance like, oh my goodness. Another real legitimate, a real prophet has come and he's preaching, let's go hear him. John is out there preaching. The truth of the matter is, you know, we are all hopeless outside the grace of God. And when you look at, at this world and this world's history, uh, you, you can't help but you don't see a garden amongst us, do you? You see a place spoiled. You see a desert spiritually. And all people, are all people concerned about God? And outside of, outside of uh, you know, so uh, are, they out, are they concerned about the work of, uh, of His Spirit in their hearts? They're not. It's not just the desert that, that's there physically. The world is a desert spiritually. We are all dead in our response towards God because we are in our transgressions and sins in which we lived outside of His grace. There is such severity, such variety of our deliberate and willful rebellion against God's holiness and righteousness. Mankind looks for new ways, it seems like, to act out in rebellion against God. And John is there right here preaching to us. Mark is announcing to us he wasn't there in the city. He wasn't among the clean-looking religious elite. There's a message, there's an imagery here that Mark wants us to see. The land was desert, but the people were also in their sin. They were desert spiritually. Mankind is in sin, and we've all followed the ways of this world that hates God and His rule, and sadly, we all have submitted to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Speaking of Satan. All of us have lived among the world, gratifying the cravings of our sinful impulses and following its desires and thoughts. We are all by nature objects of God's just wrath. Can't you hear John the Baptist preaching, repent? We're, we need to repent from our sins. And just when things look so be, bleak, this lone voice is preaching. This messenger appears to us in, our, in, in the desert proclaiming good news. He's come to preach freedom from this desert, from sin. So they needed a messenger in the desert. 
but so do we. This brings me to the next sub-point. We need an exodus from sin. We need an exodus from sin. In Scripture, the wilderness can be a place of testing, of spiritual retreat and reflection, but also in Genesis and the book of Exodus, a place of beginning. The wilderness was not only God's staging grounds for his end-time victory, according to, to Isaiah. It, it's marked where, where God led the people out from which they crossed over Jordan and seized the promised land. It was the place to which God had brought the people to win them back in Hosea 2.14. It was also the place where one went to flee iniquity. And Israel's history books, not Scripture, reveals that the prophets all abandoned the corruption of Judah for the wilderness, much like John the Baptist did. But look at the text here. John is, take, is, is, is taking people in the desert through the waters of baptism in the Jordan. Now, look at the, you can, the Jordan River should also be evocative here. It represents the border between the desert and the promised land, if you know the book of Exodus, if you know the Pentateuch. And the imagery here evokes the expectation that God is about to liberate Israel again. That's the imagery. The original audience would have sought, would have grabbed hold of those. And every year, by the way, if you know their history, at Passover time, they recited the story of Exodus from Egypt, telling over and over how God rescued Israel from Pharaoh, bringing them through the Red Sea and away across the wilderness to the Promised Land. Along with the creation story, it's the most important story in the whole Old Testament, and John's hearers would have known it well. But in simply hearing the words and remembering the story, John was turning it into a drama, a play, telling his hearers they were the cast. Many had been looking for a sign from God, but they hadn't expected it to look like this. Many wanted a Messiah to lead them against the Romans, but they weren't anticipating a prophet telling them, Repent! A greater deliverance and a greater deliverer is coming. A greater exodus is to come. John's location underlines the significance of his mission in preparation for God's new exodus coming, not from Rome, but from sin. Maybe you're listening and thinking, I'm no slave to sin, Pastor Garrett. Who do you, who do you think you are telling us this today? Okay, well, let's back up a little bit. The Bible says that outside of his intervention, we're all slaves to sin. Even our will is bound up in sin. We need liberation. There were those in Jesus' day who pushed back the same way. And when you read about them, you need to remember, that's not the camp I want to be in. They were the self-righteous, religious ones who believed they were good in their own righteousness and ethnicity in comparison to others. Hold your place here, if you like, in Mark's Gospel and turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Feel free just to listen along as I read you this interaction, particularly on this point. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you, language here, free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? 
Like you and I, of course, as readers are going, whoa, what? Jesus replied, verse 34, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if a son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Could he make it any more plain? And he goes on further, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who, who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are legitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on, I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. Where he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Amen. To all who have ears to hear me today, you need to be delivered by a greater Moses. You need, you need one who will take on your sin debt and free you once and for all. None of us are able to do it. We need to put our trust in Christ. Today, if you're under conviction of your sins, you won't say, Pastor Gary, I'd like to know forgiveness and heaven is my home. Today, the message is simple and clear. Put your trust in the Son of God. Jesus, who put on flesh, who came in flesh, was fully man in every sense and form, yet without sin, lived the perfect life of obedience and died in substitution for any and all who re repent and believe. And we'll talk about repentance more in just a moment. But what I'm calling you to do is stop looking to yourself, stop looking to other things, put your trust in Christ, who's been raised from the dead to show that God accepted payment for our sins. For any and all who repent and believe, his name is Christ, Jesus the Christ. John the Baptist proclaimed this message of freedom. As you can see to the Jews, he told them they need to get saved, they need to be forgiven, which brings me to the third sub-point here. We need to hear the call to repent. We need to hear the call to repent. Look at verse 4 again. It's better translated at preaching, preaching a baptism of forgiveness. Preaching a baptism of forgiveness. Some of your translations may have put it that way. He was preaching repentance baptism, baptism that was preceded or accompanied by repentance. The term baptism simply means to dip or immerse. It was, a, it was to symbolically wash away impurity and initiatory or purif uh, a purification rite that was observed there at the water. And scholars note that converts to Judaism were cleansed of their past, quote, Gentile impurity and reborn as Jews by a once-for-all proselyte baptism. But it's a remarkable demand here because Jews believed that only Gentiles were defiled and needed to be immersed to, to, to cleanse themselves of their impurity. You know, Romans 6.4 tells us that baptism was the picture of a watery grave of the, for the flesh, of the sinful impulse that's dead towards God and its, and, and its trespasses. 
So the call all Israel to baptism implies, hello, that in some way all Israel is defiled. The people came out to, to him to get themselves ready. And the question in Mark, the anticipation in Mark's gospel is, will they truly repent? Is this, are they serious? Are they really going to repent? When the Son of David comes, will they, will they recognize Him? Will they believe upon Him? Will they receive Him with open arms or with clenched fists? I don't want this one. Preaching repentance always shocks some. For some, it was outrageous that John would be treating Israelites like pagans and Gentiles, calling them to repent and once again become the true people of God inwardly. To walk through the Jordan like this. To pass through. Repentance involves deliberate turning from sin toward God, toward righteousness. He preaches just like the prophets of old did. John the Baptist sounds just like the old prophets do. True preaching always includes the call to take God's side against our sin. That's what repentance is. Repentance knows the error and rebellion of our current way and doesn't about face. John tells them to turn from their sins. So people, as you see the text, came confessing their sins. You see that in the text? They came confessing. Confessing sin, to call sin what God calls it in name. It was an outward sign of heartfelt repentance towards God in preparation of His coming. You ever confess your sins by name? Agree with God about your sins? Or you just slap a generic thing on it? You know, it helps you avoid it? Uh, forgive me where I failed you. Well, what, what do you mean by that? Sometimes you encounter people in a church that only speak of their sin in, in general terms. Or they do that in their prayer time. They rarely name, by name, sin. Their pride, their sinful anger, their lust. Uh, of the flesh, the greed, the malice, the busybody, the um, unsubmissiveness, the hatefulness, drunkenness, disbelieving ways. They won't confess it. Like there's an avoidance. I don't want to say it. When we confess our sins, we don't merely say, I made a mistake, Lord. We name the sin. We agree with Him that this is wrong in His sight. And maybe somebody here today needs to go to God in prayer. And call their sins what they are by name. And let the Holy Spirit awaken that deep sobriety and mournfulness in your heart that Jesus calls us to. That will kill our sense of self-righteousness when we do that. When we confess our sins, it puts to death a lot of self-righteousness. In church, when we confess our sins to one another, it should be for the purpose of helping each other repent. Not just to have a club where we all admit we're addicts. No! We need to pray for one another and sport, spur one another on to, to obedience take always, and to always take each other back to the cross, our only hope, and to the resurrection. So when we're talking with one another, when there's accountability being practiced and we're confessing our sins, let's name our sins for the purpose of getting right with the Lord and resting in the finished work of Christ. So back to the text, they're confessing sins, calling sin what sin is, and that's always prerequisite for re reconciliation. It indicates genuine repentance. One preacher said this. He said, Jesus may not look too good to you until your sins start looking bad. 
Repentance prepares the way for Jesus to come into your life. Friend, isn't it true that when we take time to name our ugly sins, we appreciate all the more the work of Christ? The Lord Jesus had to take on that in my place. Look at verse 5. Folks came from all around. They came to pledge themselves to repent of their sins by the act here of symbolized baptism. And that baptism would be meaningless. And some people do take on uh, religious practices and observances in a meaningless way. It would be meaningless if the person did not, in fact, repent inwardly and bring forth the fruit of repentance after the baptism. And the same is true today. So John was preaching that God was drawing near to His people, which would mean both blessing for the righteous and condemnation for the unrighteous. John's message is, if you repent and pledge this through baptism, God will not hold your sins against you. All are justified, beloved, who truly repent of their sins and trust in Messiah, in Christ. He always grants forgiveness where there's repentance. Today, if you are feeling convicted of your sins and you know you're not a Christian, turn to God. Confess, say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have no righteousness of my own, but I claim your promises. That if I trust in the one and only Son, I'd be cleansed and forgiven. And He will forgive you, any and all who call on His name. Isn't it humbling to see our need for such cleansing as sinners? We could not purify ourselves. We, we need God to grant that to us as a free gift. Are we not under the curse and without hope in our sin, friends? We are. And don't we need more than a better political figure for heaven's sake? And don't we need a freedom out of sin's bondage? And don't we need to heed the call, repent and be forgiven in Christ? We do. Rebellion separates all people from God. Therefore, let us humble ourselves because it is Christ alone who can save to eternal life. So we need to see our need for cleansing. Number two, point two, focus on the one who can cleanse. Focus on the one who can cleanse. Verses 7 and 8 is where I'm going to focus here now. Mark tells us that John's message was focused and simple. He preached the power, the worth, and baptism that Christ would give. We need to focus on this one. First sub-point, he has the power. I'm giving you reasons why you should focus on Jesus. He has the power. People saw John, again, in contrast to the fake spiritual leadership of the Jews, who, and knew he had the power of God on him. I mean, as we would say down south, he could preach. God was with him like the prophets of old. But John wanted to prevent people from hero worship. He wanted to be clear that he has nothing, and the one coming after him had the power to truly form God's kingdom on earth forevermore. In verse 7, John declares the one more powerful than himself. He's referring to God who has the power to truly cleanse and restore a kingdom of priests. The old covenant of Israel failed because the people failed. They would not come back as before according to the prophets. That's why they, even Moses preached to the new covenant. No, they would be reformed under Messiah, which included a great influx of the nations to form one New kingdom under the Christ. This one has the power to bring together people from every tribe and people group. He has the power to save. He has the authority. And this one has the power to take down the real enemy 
People maybe around them today, they, just like we do, they, we see with our physical eyes. That's mighty and powerful. That's threatening. That's looming over us. I'm scared of this. But that's not John's idea. It's, it, he has the power to take down the real enemy. The forces of spiritual darkness who, by the way, as you read Mark's Gospel, tremble before Christ. And they're concerned when they encounter him. Have you come to deal with us now? The real enemy and threat, the powers that we cannot defeat ourselves, are spiritual friends. The, spirit, the forces of darkness. We war not against the flesh, but against spiritual darkness. Jesus has the power, and when you unfold Mark's gospel, you see him have that power again and again. He, has, he is the worthy one. Second subpoint: he is the worthy one. Verse 7 prepares us in some ways early on as well to deal with the silly discussion between immature disciples as they compare themselves with one another about who will sit the right and left hand of Jesus. John the Baptist says, you know, and by the way, John the Baptist was a prophet in the old, true Old Covenant sense. He was a messenger of the Word appointed and anointed by God. He says, John the Baptist anoint, tells you and me and the silly disciples He's unworthy to stoop down and untie Messiah's sandals. He's lower than a disciple, lower than a slave. John didn't feel worthy to do one of the lowliest tasks imaginable in relation to his Lord. That's humbling. I, like, I, I, unless I, I could be wrong, but I like to think that John the Baptist was godlier than, than us in this room. And he, hum, he realized... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not fit to even undo, fix his sandals. Such humility. John's heart is most clearly summarized in John 3.30. He must increase, talking about Jesus, I must decrease. John the Baptist knew that his place in human history was not to point people to himself, but to prepare people for the king. I want to talk to you, to us Christians in the room right now. In this age, like every other age, full of self-promotion and our own inner tendencies, tendencies to promote self and self-righteousness, we, don't we need to adopt instead John's attitude? May he increase and I decrease. I'm not fit to untie his shoes. I am the chief of sinners. I need... I'm so, I, I have nothing to boast in. That's what Paul talked about in Corinthians. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do we have that we did not receive? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians. But beloved, you know what? If we don't open our Bibles, and if we don't pray desperately for help from above, turning from our sins and setting our eyes on Jesus, we will not grow in our esteem of him. We will only have self-esteem that points to self-righteousness. Let's turn from that, friends. You say, Pastor, I want to grow in my love for Jesus. Well, are you opening your Bible? Are you praying? Are you talking about Jesus with others? Friends, can't we all see it's our tendency to look inwardly all the time? To look at ourselves? The Bible pulls us out of that. God's Word pulls us out of ourselves and gets our eyes on Him. 
I'm, I'm depressed looking at me. Uh, don't comment. But don't you look at, the, do you ever look at yourself and get just so deeply discouraged? Get your eyes on Him. We will always disappoint. People disappoint. Jesus doesn't. He is worthy. That gives me joy today. I get to stand up and proclaim He is worthy. Third sub point. This is the medius point. Medius sub point. He is the true baptizer. He is the true baptizer. John the baptizer gives way to the true baptizer. John says, My baptism is just with mere water. His will be with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. Let me front load some teaching here. Baptism with the Holy Spirit which Jesus said he would do in the giving of his spirit, by the way, if you know what he told the disciples, happens in the book of Acts at Pentecost. He said it, we refer to the, it refers to the, save, to the activity of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the Christian life when he gives us new spiritual life in regeneration, cleansing us, giving us a clear break with the power and love of sin. He sanctifies God's people. But let's back up some in redemptive history. In a time when many Jews felt that the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn until the Messianic age, the announcement, when John dropped this bomb, it could have only been greeted with excited anticipation. There was a longing for the work of the Holy Spirit. And according to the prophets, those who knew the Old Testament, the coming of Messiah, God would gather the people of Israel, Wash them clean with water, put his spirit within them, according to Ezekiel 36. I could go on and on about Old Testament texts that talk about this. This great one to come would not merely cleanse with water, but bring to bear like a deluge, the purifying, purging, uh, judging presence of God himself. Jesus refers to himself at the woman of the well as the giver of living water. Jesus will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, create the society, the nation of the true children of Abraham, that good works, ethnicity, and man's power cannot produce. Read Paul's words about the children of Abraham in Galatians. And Mark is telling us that, that the day of Pentecost is coming. And it marked the opening of the final era of, the world, of world history before Christ's return and the consummation of the kingdom. Compared with the Old Testament era, it marked a tremendous enhancing of the Spirit's ministry and of the experience of, of being alive to God. The day of Pentecost was the point of transition between the Old Covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. John says, we're at that moment. We're almost there. And his, Jesus' disciples were evidently, by the way, spirit-born. People were born again in the Old Testament prior to the Pentecost, but their spirit baptism, which brought power to their life and ministry, was not the start of their spiritual experience. They're in that in-between stage. Yes, the Spirit was convicting. Yes, the Spirit was granting regeneration. But that outpouring in its vast number and empowering unto His people, they were waiting on. So for all who have come to faith since Pentecost, you know about that in the book of Acts, 
The receiving of the Spirit in full new covenant blessing has been one aspect of the conversion and new birth. I mean, this is exciting. Let me just keep boiling it down. That means that God is saving people. Let me just bring it together for us. God is saving people from all over the world and gathering His people from the four corners by the power of the Word and the Holy Spirit. Not just working there among Israel as He was in the Old Covenant, but an outpouring of saving grace. It's not that the Holy Spirit's baptism was, was Christ's baptism with the Holy Spirit that gives... It's, it's, it's Christ. Let me say this. It's Christ's baptism with the Holy Spirit that gives us new life and places us into the body when we trust in Christ. It's His baptism, His bringing, pouring out the Spirit on us. And so as the Spirit from on high is poured out on us, we who are like the desert in our sins, dead unto God, now transformed into an orchard that seems like a forest. God transforms us from desolate, uninhabitable, dead in our sins and transgressions, to life anew in Him. We are now exhorted... In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. If you have been born again, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. And the Father sent the Son, the Son sends the Spirit. The Son is the divine Savior. The Spirit is the divine comforter, helper, helper and advocate. The Son is the baptizer and the Holy Spirit is the agent of baptism who unites us to Christ and the Father. I know it's a lot of uh, theology proper, but nevertheless it's in the text. When John announces this, he's saying, one, Messiah is coming and you know what the prophet said he would do. It's in his time, in the inauguration of the kingdom, God's going to pour out his Spirit People are going to be getting saved from all over. And this people are going to love me inwardly. All of them. All my true people will be marked inwardly. Empowered by the Spirit of God. Sanctified unto holy use. That's why the New Testament authors like Paul say, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Set aside for holy use. Christian friends listening to me this morning you see that He alone, Jesus alone, can bring the cleansing, establishing, and saving of God's eternal people. He has the power where we are weak. He is worthy of all praise where we are not worthy. He alone can pour out the grace of God by the Spirit because He is God. God said He would pour out His Spirit. This connection here in the text lets you know that Jesus is God. He will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Can't you feel the dirty effects of sin? Can't you see the need to be cleansed through the work of Christ? We need cleansing. We need to focus on the one who can cleanse us. The message is the same. My message this morning is the same as John the Baptist. Don't look at me. Don't look at anybody else. Everybody else is unfit. Everybody else is unworthy. We're all powerless to save. But let me tell you about the one who is. Set your minds on him. Put your trust in Jesus. And walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.
Lord, we praise you that you have rescued and redeemed us from the dominion of darkness, the slavery of sin, and through your Son brought us into the kingdom. It's in Jesus we get real eternal redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you imaged God perfectly where none of us did. You are the rightful heir over all creation. You are the creator of all things, and you are above all things, and all things are held together by you. You are the head of your called out ones. You are the first from among the dead in victory. And you have all supremacy. In you is the reconciliation between God and man. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You have made peace for us, Lord, with the Father through your blood shed on the cross. In our sins, we were all alienated from you, enemies in our minds, and especially in our wicked behavior. But God, because of your great grace, you have reconciled us through your, the work of Christ to present us holy in your sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And you have purified us in the Holy Spirit. Help us to walk as your people, to preach the hope that we have, giving thanks to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.